Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon Booklist, Coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. All right, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. Graham Young was an unusual boy. Infinitely fascinated with chemistry, he devoted large amounts of his life poring over thick medical textbooks, educating himself on the properties of various chemical compounds. What stood Graham out from his peers more than his intellect, however, was that his obsession with chemistry revolved almost solely around the use of various poisons. Curiosity has always been inherently dangerous, and this is infinitely more true in the case of Graham Young when theory turned to practice. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello, welcome to Dark Histories. I think this is Series 3, Episode 19 now. This week is going to be a great episode, which I've had on the burner for absolutely ages, probably about two seasons now. And an episode that I came across a film, which I will explain more about later, because it's it's definitely worth a watch. But it's, yes, it should be a great episode. So before we start, of course, I just want to say thank you to all the patrons and everyone who supports. Uh, and thank you very much to all the new patrons. We've got Mickey, Vivia, Lindsay, Carl, Joanna, Lee, Benjamin, great name, Matthew and Helen. Thanks very much to everyone for su- your support. It's, it's really, really appreciated. And thanks very much to James, who, for this episode, a long time ago now, sent me um, a a couple of books on this episode, but also uh, managed to track down uh, an old magazine, uh, which was like one of those kind of periodical, like monthly magazines where they covered, it was almost like every month you collected the next uh, instalment of this magazine. And at the end, you would have like a, a, a... a kind of compendium, I, I guess. They used to release them all the time. I think you can probably still get this, those sorts of things. But this one was about murderers and serial killers. And uh, he managed to track down a really old magazine with Graham about Graham Young, who's the subject of this episode. And he, he sent me that to use as a source. So, yeah, that was really, really great. Um, it's a really um, quite unusual source. So that, 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 that was fantastic. So thanks very much, James. So without further ado, let's get going. This is Graham Young, the tea boy. As ancient as humankind itself, poisons have been used for millennia, and second only to a trusty sharpened tool are amongst the oldest methods devised to cause and quicken death. Quickly morphing from an aid in hunting to a tool for murder, the origins of poisons used in homicides is impossible to track. In ancient peoples, Secretive details on the acquisition, preparation and administration would almost certainly have led to a certain level of power gained over fellow members of their tribal societies. Shamanistic individuals were born and inner circles of the dark secrets to an invisible killer were formed, passing down knowledge through generations. 
Documentation as far back as the Sumerians in 2500 BCE shows a society that worshipped Gula, a female deity of noxious poisons, followed by the Egyptians whose kings both studied and succumbed to the effects of poison. The Veda, India's earliest records of civilization, include medical literature that form the foundation of Indian medical tradition. An entire chapter exists within devoted to toxicology, giving advice to physicians on poisons, including instruction to feed suspected food to animals. It is necessary for the practitioner to have knowledge of the symptoms of different poisons and their antidotes, as the enemies of the Raja, bad woman and ungrateful servants sometimes mix poison with food. The Greeks bought into poisons in a big way, with Medea, the priestess of Hecate, using poisons whilst Olympias, mother of Alexander the Great, allegedly poisoned Alexander's rivals during his ascension to the throne. Socrates was executed using hemlock as a poison, mixed into a lethal drink, whilst the court of Areopagus, one of the most esteemed judicial councils in all of Athenian democracy, was assigned to process trials for cases that included poisoning. As times moved forwards, so too did the tradition of poison, and Emperor Nero of the Romans employed a woman named Lucusta as his personal poisoner, assisting him in the assassination of his brother, mother, and a handful of wives. Poisoning using wolfsbane was so common an affair that the Emperor Trajan banned the growing of the plant in domestic gardens in an effort to stem the growing use of poisons for nefarious deeds, and in 82 BC, the first laws were drafted against the use of poisons in cases of murder. The Middle Ages saw the rise of the Italian poisoners and a real golden age spawned amongst the people of the Renaissance. Murder by poison became so prevalent in political circles that the concept of a natural death in the highest echelons of society became a dark joke. The Borgias family, whose many esteemed members included popes, politicians and the inspiration for Machiavelli's The Prince, were well-known arsenic poisoners, murdering their political rivals as they vied for power. In common usage, women began using poisons to dispose of their unwanted husbands, either to put an end to their tyrannical personalities or to expedite their inheritance. Medicine women, like the renowned Julia Tofana, who taught, supplied and spread the use of poisons to the wives, are credited with aiding and abetting murders that number into the hundreds, if not thousands. A second golden age came with the dawn of the Victorians. As procurement became more accessible, and the life of the common man more valuable with the invention of life insurance, poison became a subtle, often untraceable method to carry out an unsavoury business. Many of the most famous poisoners, who carried out their work in order to kill systematically, now have names firmly noted into popular folklore and legend. In 1910, just as the golden age of poison was coming to an end, Dr Crippen was hanged for his role after poisoning his wife and dismembering her body. As forensic science evolved throughout the 20th century, one might assume that poisons as a tool in murder might have fallen by the wayside, losing one of its key qualities as a stealth weapon, but that's not entirely the case. Despite being more traceable now more than ever, poisons continue to fascinate, fear, and in some cases, seduce with their power to plot, scheme and murder in such detached and clandestine ways, removing the natural barriers of more physical means. They are a great leveller, shifting power as the promise stokes fear 
and the practice meters out silent, often slow, and almost always painful death. And still this fascination continues today. With the invention of the dark web, poisons were quick to be included amongst the list of questionable items readily for sale. One individual who took an unhealthy interest in poisons was a young man named Graham Young, who took a hobbyist interest in chemistry and turned it into a psychopathic career of human experimentation. Graham Young was born in Neasden Hospital, North London, on the 7th of September 1947. He was the second child in his family. Winifred, his elder sister, was born eight years prior in 1939. His father, Frederick Young, was a charge hand machine setter in a clockmaking factory, whilst his mother, Margaret Young, looked after Winifred. Just three months after the birth of Graham, however, she passed away on the 23rd of December after suffering from spinal tuberculosis. She died following complications when an abscess grew out of control at the base of her spine. His wife's death struck hard at Fred, and following, he suffered a complete mental breakdown, leading to Graham and Winifred being cared for by relatives who lived close by. Winifred went to live with her grandmother, whilst Graham went to live with his aunt and uncle, Winnie and Jack, and his cousin, Sandra, born a few years previous, on the far northwestern boundary of London. The situation might have been difficult for Graham, but at such a young age, he took the change in his stride, eventually growing to be very close with his surrogate family. He played happily with his older cousin and called his stand-in parents Auntie Patty and Daddy Jack. In 1950, three years after Margaret's death, Fred, who's still now only aged 33, met a young Irish woman in his local pub where she played the accordion named Molly. They became close friends, discovering that they worked for the same company and by April the 1st were married. Fred had recently moved in with his mother and Winifred but now sought to bring the young family back together. He sold his house and bought Aunt Winnie and Uncle Jack's house on North Circular Road where Graham had spent the previous three years with his adoptive parents. He now found himself under the same roof but his parent figures removed, instead replaced by his birth father and his new stepmom. Graham would later point to this upheaval as the beginning of the bitterness that he felt for his stepmom, who was a strict, straight woman happy to exercise discipline on her new children. At five years old, Graham began attending Braincroft School, where he was seen as an average student, though his mathematical ability left something to be desired. Instead, Graham preferred the written word to figures and sums. He visited the library with his sister and tore voraciously through books. Though he was seen as shy, he would take part happily in the school plays, but never really made any close friends amongst his classmates. Instead, he could often be found in the park, chatting to pensioners who sat perched, unmoving, on the public benches throughout the day. Whilst his relationship with his stepmother was rocky at times, it was positively stone-cold with his father, who always treated him with an unemotional distance. Their relationship was often described as formal, and his uncle, who was close friends with Fred, often theorised that Graham's father blamed Graham in some way for his mother's early death. When he was aged nine, things started to go slightly off the rails for Graham. His stepmother had gone through his school jacket pockets during the laundry and discovered that he had stolen a small vial of acid, stashing it in his pocket and subsequently burning a small hole in the material. It was around this time too that she noticed that her nail varnish and perfume bottles were going missing. 
These all could easily have been seen as innocent, and in the case of the nail varnish and perfume, circumstantial. But when she found a small bottle of edder in his pockets, she confronted her son, who told her simply that he enjoyed sniffing it. When she inquired where both the acid and the edder had come from, he explained matter-of-factly that he had stolen them from the bins outside of the local chemist. Naturally, Molly began to feel some concern for her son, and so, after speaking with Fred, the pair decided to pay closer interest in his hobbies. They soon found that outside of making model planes, his primary hobby was visiting the library and taking out books, spending the vast majority of his time reading. For most parents, this would come as some relief. However, the books that Graham was choosing to read were perhaps not quite the material that most would expect for a nine-year-old. The subjects were diverse and complicated, but mainly focused around medical science, crime, black magic, the occult, and as a final whammy, Nazism. Molly visited the library to request they pay more mind to the books that Graham was borrowing. However, the librarian simply assured Mrs. Young that young boys were often interested in military affairs. Graham took this interest a little further than most, and when he found a swastika badge, he took to wearing it pinned proudly to his chest. This time, Fred approached his son to explain to him that the badge was inappropriate, but young Graham, whom Fred had no doubt hoped was being naively insensitive, debated the positive points of the Nazi war policies. With his parents taking an interest in his books, Graham would frequently tell them all about the history of the Second World War, with a particular focus on the Third Reich. At 11 years old, Graham took his 11 plus exams, a series of tests that signalled the end of junior education and paved the way for a student's future. Upon successfully completing this landmark, Fred bought Graham a chemistry set in celebration, choosing to attempt to foster Graham's interest in science rather than push against it. Chemistry was, after all, a potentially good career for a young man with a working class upbringing. This indulgence did not go amiss and Graham instantly set about creating experiments in his bedroom, poisoning mice. After he started attending John Kelly Secondary School in Williston, he took one of the mice home from science class to perform a forensic autopsy. However, Molly quickly put a stop to the proceedings, demanding he throw the dead creature away. The next morning, she woke to find a sketch drawn by Graham left on the kitchen table of a headstone with the inscription, In hateful memory, Molly Young rip. A week later, she found a small wax doll in his pocket stuck with pins. At school, Graham was performing in much the same way as he had throughout his junior education. He was seen by most teachers as an average student, though he was excelling in science, where he was quickly put into the A stream, a now defunct term that was essentially a class reserved for the most promising children in each subject. One big change had taken place though, for the first time in his life, Graham had made friends his own age. Chris Williams and Clive Krieger were two other boys from the Science A stream, and Graham enjoyed their company. They never challenged him during his long diatribes about medical science and the Nazis during lunch break, and they called him the Mad Professor, which he liked. Whilst his medical interests continued to seem strange to his parents, they did seem equally impressive. Graham had by now adopted a party trick, taking it upon himself to diagnose illnesses for family and friends, suggesting courses of medications and explaining possible side effects, which, whilst unusual, did have its uses. 
All the time he spoke to them on their aches and pains, he would use long, archaic medical terminology and over-explain origins, going off on indecipherable tangents. In 1960, at the age of 12, one of Graham's favourite books was published, Poisoner in the Dock, Twelve Studies in Poisoning, by John Rowland. It was a compendium of famous poisoners and the details of their cases, his particular favourite being that of Dr Edward William Pritchard, who had poisoned his wife and mother-in-law in 1865 with antimony potassium nitrate. This compound sparked a specific interest in Graham that burned within him, eventually leading him to walk into the chemist in Neesden in order to purchase his own. At the age of 13, he was far under the legal age for purchasing restricted poisons, and Reese, the chemist's owner, questioned him heavily on the substance's intended purpose. Graham had expected this difficulty, however, and he prepared well launching into an enthusiastic explanation for the experiments that he had designed which called for the chemical's use. By the time he was done, Rees sold him 25 grams of antimony, pushing the register over the counter for Graham to sign, which he did with the name M.E. Evans and giving a false address. When the police asked him later why he had sold the poison to a boy clearly so underage, he confessed, I was convinced by his knowledge that he was older than he appeared. The first purchase of such a dangerous poison opened up a whole new world for Graham, who soon after took a job mopping the floor in a local cafe, spending his wages on more and more chemical supplies from Reese, all the time carrying around the initial bottle of antimony in his pocket, calling it his special friend. He told his school friends Krieger and Williams that he wanted to become a famous poisoner. The pair just assumed it was all part of Graham's dark humour. In fact, they dismissed these grand announcements by Graham with such ease that despite Graham openly talking about poisons and their effects at every opportunity, they both overlooked the events that would follow to an unbelievable degree. At school, the relationship with his two friends had started to grow a little less stable. Chris Williams had started to hang out with a different boy, and when Graham noticed the two walking together at lunch, he grew angry toward Williams, challenging him to a fight. Graham, slightly out of shape and relatively weak, promptly got opened up by Williams. The fight ended before it started, with Graham sitting in the dirt, humiliated. The following Monday, one week later, Williams was sent home from school after vomiting violently, and though his recovery was relatively quick, he soon fell ill again just days after his return. He had not paid it any mind at the time, but on both occasions, he had skipped school dinner at lunch and instead shared Graham's sandwiches, which he had gladly offered up to his dear friend. These bouts of illnesses continued throughout the school year, and all the time, Graham offered up medical advice gladly to his ailing friend. On a trip to London Zoo in the spring of 1961, Graham even offered Williams a bottle of lemonade that he told him he had treated with a special powder, which would, Graham assured him, help to settle his troubled stomach. By the same afternoon, Williams was hunched over, throwing up outside the tube station, and had to spend the next few days back in bed again, recovering from the mystery reoccurring bug. He had visited the doctors on several occasions, but nothing the doctors prescribed seemed to do much good, and eventually, after being forwarded to the hospital for further advanced testing, he was diagnosed with migraines, and his parents were advised to take him to see a psychiatrist. 1961 had been a difficult year for Graham at home. His stepmom had gone through his room and found his stash of antimony, 
and so Graham knew that he could no longer study his poisons in the house. He took to spending his time reading in the park and holding up in his laboratory a small shed on the allotment nearby. His recent experiments had been in bomb-making, which were essentially glorified fireworks. Graham would buy regular fireworks, tear them apart and repackage them into even larger configurations, until one day he had a small accident which blew up half the shed, including much of his poison stash. The police were called and investigated the scene, but never linked it to Graham, and though they found traces of the poisons, put them down to being used agriculturally as pesticides. Restocking was another problem. When Molly had found the antimony in his room, she had taken it upon herself to visit Reese's chemist and explain that Graham was only 13 years old and that he should no longer sell poisons to him. With his story blown, Graham could no longer buy his supplies with ease. It was a problem that he could easily solve. He simply found a new chemist, run by Edgar Davies, and bought from there instead, using exactly the same tactic as he had with Reese to convince him he was of age. He used the same false name of M.E. Evans and the same false address once again and happily walked out of the chemist carrying his new stock of deadly chemicals. As the winter of 1961 blew in across London, the young family fell ill to what was assumed to be a stomach bug. Molly, Fred and Winnie all came down with illness, though seemed to recover quickly enough, except Molly, whose suffering was more prolonged than the rest of the family. Even Graham fell ill at one point, throwing up on the doorstep of his aunt and uncle's house. Throughout his stepmother's illness, Graham collected her medications from the chemist and helped in its administering, as well as suggesting various remedies which might perk her up. September saw his 14th birthday, which he celebrated by poisoning his sister's morning tea with deadly nightshade extract. Winifred had been sent home from work after falling ill and visited the hospital where doctors scratched their heads explaining that she seemed to be suffering from the symptoms of belladonna poisoning. As the winter drew colder, Molly Young's condition continued to descend, whilst those around her began to worry. She was only 38 years old, but she looked far beyond her years. Winifred described her as wasting away before our eyes. This decline continued for months, and by April of 1962, she was admitted to Williston Hospital with severe body pains and numb limbs. On the evening of the 21st of April, she passed away in a hospital bed, with a pathologist signing her death certificate with the prolapse of her cervical disc. Graham himself pointed out that this did not seem to account for her symptoms. Whilst consoling his father, he heavily recommended that her body should be cremated, which his father apathetically arranged for the 26th of April. As it turned out, Graham had been feeding Molly small doses of antimony for over a year, He had intentionally kept the dosage low to maintain a constant sickness without killing her. However, he had fed her so much that over the time she had built up an immunity. Graham had in fact figured this out and so he administered a fatal dose of thallium, concluding his experiment. He used enough thallium in his final dosage to kill 12 people. During the wake at the funeral, his uncle John fell ill after eating one of the sandwiches from the buffet. Graham apparently just couldn't help himself. Once more, Fred Young found himself a widow and once again, he took the situation hard. On Sundays, he would visit the pub, taking Graham with him and consoling himself in a few beers. 
His hangovers were incredibly violent considering he only drank a few ales. But he didn't give it too much thought, even after they had gotten so bad that he had to visit the hospital as the pains in his stomach were so severe. During his stay, doctors tested him for both antimony and thallium poisoning but found no traces of either, which Graham was fairly shocked by. He took it upon himself to explain to the doctors how one could distinguish between the two poisons' effects and how to properly test for them. Not everyone surrounding Graham were quite so naive as to the uncanny coincidence that seemed to surround him. Wherever he was, it seemed, people always fell ill. His Aunt Winnie confronted Graham outright, asking if he was poisoning his family, though he flatly denied it. William Krieger, his school friend, who he had been poisoning for over a year, was also suspicious. He was finally putting two and two together and told his parents of his suspicions, who agreed but were concerned that they couldn't raise them to the police without any evidence. It wasn't until the following week, in the spring of 1962, that Graham's science teacher, who had noticed Graham bringing poisons into the school's lab to analyse, decided to check through his desk, where he discovered a scribbled medley of poems in his notebook, all written as odes to various poisons, along with a drawing of poisoners and essays on Dr. Crippen. This would likely alarm any teacher by itself, However, it was the presence of actual poison stored in vials in his school desk that sealed the deal. He visited the headmaster, explaining all that he had found, and both visited a local doctor, where they spoke of the illnesses that surrounded Graham and his family. The three men were, by now, incredibly suspicious and convinced that Graham had been involved in something very dark indeed, but with no evidence, felt they were hopelessly drawn into a dead end. Working together, they devised a plan to attempt to eke out information from Graham himself, and as such, they decided to set up a mock careers interview for him. The careers officer that met with Graham was in fact a psychiatrist that they had briefed previously. Straight out of the gate, the careers officer asked Graham what his interests were, and when he enthusiastically replied, speaking about chemistry, the officer appealed to his ego by suggesting he might be a fit candidate for university. Graham continued on, reassuring the officer that he indeed was bright enough and he expelled a huge volley of information on poisons and their uses. Hearing enough, Mr Hughes, the science teacher and the school's headmaster, instantly went to the police. Their earlier concerns for lack of evidence need not have worried them as the story appealed to the police. He went to Graham's home and raided his room. Inside, they found a stash of poisons including antimony, thallium, digitalis, ironine, atropine and barium chloride. That evening they caught up with Graham at his aunt's house where they promptly arrested him on suspicion of malicious administration of poisons and took him to nearby Harlesden police station. Graham was an easy suspect and he quickly gave a full written confession, at least as full as he felt was appropriate. I have been interested in poisons, their properties and effects since I was about 11. I tried out one of them on my friend, Chris Williams. I gave him two or three grains at school. I think it was probably on a cream biscuit or cake. He was sick after taking it. Later, I gave him other doses, always on food. After that, I started experimenting at home by putting sometimes one and sometimes three grains of poison on prepared foods which my mother, father and sister would eat. I must have eaten some of the poisons myself occasionally because I became sick as well. After eating the food, all of my family were sick. By September of last year, 
This had become an obsession with me, and I continued to give my family small doses of antimony tartrate on prepared foods. One morning at the end of November, I was getting ready to go to school when I saw my sister's cup of tea on the dresser. I put one-tenth of a grain of belladonna in the milk and left for school. That night, my mother told me my sister had been ill during the day. She had told me what the symptoms were, and I knew it was the effect of the belladonna. I gave some of the remainder to Williams. On occasions, I have also put antimony tartrate solution or powder on foods at home which my mother and father have taken. My mother lost weight all the time through it, and I stopped giving it to her about February of this year. After my mother died on the 21st of April this year, I started putting poisons at home in milk and water and food. As a result, my father became ill and was taken to hospital. I then realised how ill he was. I cannot think of anyone else that I have given poison to. I knew that the doses that I was giving were not fatal, but I knew I was doing wrong. It grew on me like a drug habit, except it was not me who was taking the drugs. I realised how stupid I have been with these poisons. I knew this all along, but I could not stop it. Graham's confession had some glaring holes. But he was right about one thing. His father had really been critically ill in hospital. In fact, Graham's arrest essentially saved his life. As doctors later found out that he was a single dose away from death. After his confession, Graham was officially charged with poisoning Fred Young, Winifred Young and his friend Chris Williams. Amazingly, this news came as a shock to most of his family, who said that whilst they had harboured some suspicion towards Graham, they just couldn't bring themselves to believe a 13 or 14 year old could poison his own family. Whilst incarcerated awaiting trial, he undertook a psychological evaluation which concluded that he lacked moral sense. During this examination, he told the psychiatrist that he missed his antimony and the power that it gave him. Graham's trial was quick. He pleaded guilty on all counts, and as such, much of the trial concerned itself with exactly what to do with the young man. The entire report of his medical examination was read out as evidence, whilst the prosecution attempted to build a case to have him imprisoned in a maximum security hospital. He is obviously highly intelligent, but his emotional responses are slow and he has never exhibited the slightest distress in relating the instances of poisoning. Indeed, he seems to experience emotional satisfaction in doing so, and particularly in revealing his intimate knowledge of the toxicology of the various drugs concerned. His attitude to the whole matter was unrealistic, and he did not seem to be able to appreciate that he had indulged in acts for which he deserved any serious reprehension. He told me of his great interest in drugs and their poisonous effects, but was unable to reveal any reason for such interest. He said he had no grievances against any of his relatives or his friend, and indeed, though he loved them quite well, it just seemed that they were the nearest people to hand for his purpose. There is no doubt in my mind that this youth is at present a very serious danger to other people. His intense obsession and almost exclusive interest in drugs and their poisoning effect is not likely to change, and he could well repeat this cool, calm, calculating administration of these poisons at any time. The court did mention his mother's death, but to Graham's satisfaction, mistakenly said they found no reason to believe that Graham had a hand in her death, which was due to natural causes. The defence plea even included the fact that he had never administered a fatal dose, despite having the means to do so and that this should allow him some leniency in his sentencing. 
Finally, it was decided that he should serve a 15-year sentence in Broadmoor, a maximum security hospital for the criminally insane. The trial had been swift and the fuss minimal, a fact that had not gone unnoticed by Graham, who would be sure to correct this in due time. Despite his high walls and domineering silhouette, Broadmoor is assuredly a purpose-built hospital rather than prison. Opening in 1863 as the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum, its colourful existence has seen the hospital serve as a Victorian lunatic asylum, a prisoner of war camp for mentally ill German soldiers during the First World War, and finally morphing into its form as a hospital for mentally ill offenders in 1948, which saw its administration taken over by the Department of Health rather than the Home Office. During the time of Graham Young's stay as a patient in Broadmoor, which, for the record, is an important distinction, often forgotten by the media, that the inhabitants were indeed classed as patients rather than prisoners. Broadmoor was one of three such institutions in England, with accommodation for 450 patients, 65% of which were sent there after conviction. 25% of the patients were boarded at Broadmoor with charges, but considered unfit to plead, whilst the remaining 10% were admitted from conventional mental institutions after they had showed violent tendencies. Unfortunately for Graham, he found himself housed in a Broadmoor that was shockingly overcrowded, home to around 750 patients rather than the 450 it had official capacity for. Beds were left in corridors and day rooms, staff rooms and wards were used as overflow canteens, and there was only eight psychiatrists charged with handling every case for each patient. A 1968 report of the hospital summarised the conditions inside the walls as frightful. Graham, however, had it quite easy. Due to both his age and his deemed level of danger, he was put up in a private room in the reception block containing a bed screwed to the floor and a small window with heavy iron bars. The hospital had a strict daily regime, waking the patients at 7am with lights out at 8pm. Graham was allowed seven family visits per month, though he certainly received nowhere near that number. His father had more or less disowned his son by now, suffering as he was from permanent liver damage due to the poison. As part of his treatment, the doctors attempted to find Graham a personal tutor, recognising his intelligence and willingness to learn. However, after great pains to find someone for him, he finally turned the offer down, instead stating that he would be better off learning by himself by reading books from the library. During his early days in Broadmoor, one of the nurses commented on his behaviour. He lived very much in a fantasy world at first. All he would talk about were his poisons. Within a month of his arrival, another patient, John Burridge, who had been convicted of shooting both of his parents, died from cyanide poisoning. Baffled as to how anyone in Broadmoor might have gotten hold of cyanide, the investigation eventually found that the farm next door had an entire field of laurel bushes the leaves and seeds of the fruit of which are cyanogenic. There was enough growing that a chemist with the knowledge to extract the poison could have killed the entire population of the hospital. Graham himself was quick to confess to the murder, as were several other inmates, though in the end, the case was shelved, left open and unsolved. Feeling his room was in need of sprucing up, Graham decorated the walls with photographs of Nazi leaders and Nazi emblems. He painted skulls and crossbones on his tea set and rather unbelievably borrowed books from the library on toxicology and the Third Reich. 
His notoriety spread throughout the hospital quickly, which ended in the vast majority of patients taking a disliking towards him. Graham was relatively okay with this as a result, content to get along by himself, quietly reading and ignoring those around him. His care regimen involved centrally around group therapy, which he quickly shunned. His medication was sedatives, and his father signed documents permitting the hospital to conduct electroconvulsive therapy. However, there appears no evidence that they used it. In July of 1963, almost a year into his stay at Broadmoor, he wrote a letter to his school friend, Chris Williams, that described his time in the hospital. I hope that you are keeping well. Just a few lines to let you know how I am getting on. It is not too bad a place here. The food is pretty good, and there are things to occupy me some of the time. There is a television set to watch at night, and the wireless to listen to during the day. There is also billiards and snooker, etc. We can go down to the cricket field to watch the hospital playing an outside or inside team. I don't usually go down, though. My doctor told me that I'll not have to do the 15 years here. He has told me that if my progress continues, I'll be out in about six years. This is still a long time, but it's not half as long as 15 years, is it? The doctors that Graham referred to in the letter were Dr. Edgar Udwin and Dr. Patrick McGrath. Dr. McGrath was in fact the head of the entire hospital and as such had a hand in every case. However, he took a special interest in Graham Young. Although there were two more incidents involving Graham, the first, the hashed attempt at poisoning the large communal vat of tea with sugar soap and the second, an attempt at poisoning tea with Harpic cleaner, Graham soon cottoned on to the fact that if he was to get out as early as his doctors had suggested, he needed to start behaving himself and dealing with his impulsive need to poison the entire hospital. He began settling down, getting involved in the community and applying for jobs at the police forensic labs, though his applications were swiftly rejected. On the other hand, he decided to become a fully paid up member of the National Front, an openly neo-fascist political party founded in 1967. He applied for early release twice, in both 1965 and 1966, but both times was rejected. By 1970, however, his good behaviour had seen him rise to the status of star patient and model member of the Broadmoor community. Dr. Udwin, taken in by Graham's abrupt about-face, recommended him personally for release, writing that he is no longer obsessed with poisons, violence and mischief, and he is no longer a danger to others. As a preliminary experiment, he was allowed a weekend staying with his sister in October of 1970, though upon discovering the doctor's plan, Winnie herself expressed concern. She met with the doctors, who reassured her that Graham was a changed man, completely reformed, which settled her nerves somewhat. The weekend was a shining success, and Graham spent three days at his sister's house with her husband and newborn daughter, visiting the pub and enjoying the new surroundings. That Christmas saw the experiment repeated, and once again succeed, reassuring all involved that Graham was indeed ready for release. In February of 1971, his release forms were signed on three conditions. That he must reside at a fixed address, that he must undergo supervision from that he must undergo supervision, that he must undergo supervision from a probation officer, and that he must regularly attend a psychiatric outpatient clinic. On Thursday the 4th of February 1971, nine years after his trial, Graham Young stepped out of Broadmoor a free man. 
deemed by the hospital doctors as fully recovered. This was a prognosis which would prove to be faithfully naive. Upon his release, Graham first visited his sister's house in Hemel Hempstead, 25 miles southeast of London. She had not been given any prior warning of Graham's release, but nevertheless, she took him in, allowing him to stay with her family. They quickly found out that Graham's new tirade was against the IRA, a group which he insisted should be dealt with the same way the Nazis dealt with Warsaw. Innocents may die in the process, he conceded, but at least the IRA would be dealt with. In much the same way he would pace around lecturing his family on the Third Reich, he now did the same thing with his new political obsession. The living situation with his sister was fine, but Graham, far from becoming institutionalised, craved his independence. He took it upon himself to seek out new accommodation, taking up a bed in a hostel in Sippenham, west of London, while signing up with the employment exchange in order to try and find himself a job. Whilst he was attending the training centre, he made friends with Trevor Sparks, a fellow attendee at the exchange, who lived nearby to Graham's hostel. Soon after the pair began hanging out, Trevor began falling ill, suffering severe abdominal pains and vomiting. Graham suggested he drink wine to help, happily offering him a glass from his own bottle. As Trevor's mystery illness continued without improvement, he was eventually hospitalised and diagnosed with some sort of muscle strain. In April 1971, much to Sparks' luck, Graham applied for a job in Bovingdon, Kent, nearby to his sister's house. The position was in the storehouse of John Hadlin Limited, an optical and photographic instruments manufacturer, and on his application he wrote, I previously studied chemistry, organic and inorganic, pharmacology and toxicology over the last 10 years and I therefore have some knowledge of chemicals and their usage. It was perhaps a little misleading, but probably more upfront than most might include. In his interview, he told the interviewer that he had spent the past 10 years recovering from a mental breakdown after the sudden death of his mother in a car accident. In celebration for the strides he was making in society as a free man, he popped into a chemist on the way home to purchase a vial of antimony though he was initially denied the sale due to lack of authorisation. He returned a week later with a forged letter on printed headed notepaper from Bedford College in London, this time securing the right to buy the poison. He signed the register with the trusty name that he had always used, M.E. Evans, and left the shop with his new little friend. His interview had gone well, but not quite as well as Graham had presumed. The interviewer had held some reserves as to Graham's condition and so wrote to Dr. Udwin to confirm his recovery from mental breakdown. Udwin was more than happy to oblige, recommending him for work enthusiastically. This man has suffered a deep-going personality disorder which necessitated his hospitalisation throughout the whole of his adolescence. He has, however, made an extremely full recovery and is now entirely fit for discharge. His sole disability now being the need to catch up on his lost time. It was enough for Haddens, who wrote to Graham confirming the offer of a position to work in their storeroom. Graham temporarily moved in with his sister again, but after his first day at work on Monday the 10th of May, he quickly found himself a small rented room in a private tenancy. In typical fashion, he pasted up pictures of Nazi leaders on the walls and once more began collecting bottles of poison on his windowsill. At work, 
He seemed to get on well with everyone and even met a kindred spirit in Martin Hancock who shared his love of chemistry. He worked closely with a man named Ron Hewitt, Frederick Biggs and Bob Eggle. Eggle was a veteran of Dunkirk and Graham enjoyed listening to his war stories. Given his low rung on the ladder and newest member of staff in the storeroom, one of his duties assigned was to collect the tea and coffee from the tea trolley that came round the factory during break times. The trolley was left at the end of the corridor from the storeroom and Graham would walk down, collect the mugs on a tray and return to everyone with their break time drink. On June the 3rd, less than a month from his start date, Bob Eggle was sent home from work ill and a week later, Ron Hewitt was also taken ill. Both quickly recovered, putting it down to food poisoning and returned to work after a few days rest. Eggle, however, couldn't seem to fully recover and fell to new bouts of sickness and eventually, after his hair began falling out, was admitted to hospital with numbness of the limbs, unable to support himself. On the 7th of July, he died in hospital diagnosed with bronchopneumonia. Graham attended the funeral with his boss and on the way discussed Eggle's illness in depth, convinced that it wasn't bronchopneumonia at all. It was all a different language to Hadland, but he was impressed by Graham's apparent medical knowledge all the same. Within weeks, Frederick Biggs too fell ill, along with Peter Buck and David Tilson, two men from the import-export department. Panic began to bubble up in the factory as people saw people drop like flies around them. One of the most commonly blamed culprits was a stomach virus nicknamed the Bovingdon Bug. On one Friday evening, Graham found himself working late in the storeroom alone with Jeffro Bat, who was working overtime but had promised to drive Graham home. Graham offered to make the coffee for their break and sure enough, Bat soon after was struck down sick. Talk began moving away from the Bovington bug, however, when the sufferer's hair all began falling out. Diane Smart, the secretary, was sent home ill after that she had noticed and gleefully pointed out that Graham seemed to be the only member of the storeroom to have avoided the virus. Rumours flew through the factory of water contamination or of radiation poisoning from recent work in the unit opposite. In an effort to stem the panic and the incessant rumours destroying morale, Hadland called in Dr Robert Hine, the local medical officer, to give the place a full sweep and investigate. He did his best, but in the end was able to offer no explanation. On Friday the 19th of November, the panic became more pronounced after the death of Frederick Biggs, following his hospitalisation. Dr Hind returned and called a meeting to inform the workers on the situation as he had found it during his investigation. There was, he said, three possible causes for the mysterious illness. It could either be radioactive poisoning or heavy metal poisoning. Though thallium that was used in optics would have been the obvious answer, there was none currently stored on the premises, allowing him to confidently rule out these first two. Finally, he said, it must surely be the infamous Bovingdon bug. The staff were not entirely happy about this conclusion, not least Graham Young. Graham questioned the doctor openly, wanting to know why heavy metal poisoning had been so quickly ruled out and suggested that the symptoms suffered appeared to be showing it as the most likely cause. He spoke at length and with such knowledge that the doctor hung back after the meeting was dismissed to question him. Both Dr Hind and John Hadland had found Graham's enthusiasm at the meeting remarkably suspicious but decided they had no real reason to suspect Graham of anything and therefore thought they should drop the matter. Something didn't sit quite right with Hadland though. 
Maybe it was Diane Smart's observation that Graham was the only member of the storeroom staff to have not come down ill. Or maybe it was just putting two and two together, but he took it upon himself to contact his solicitor to ask for advice on what he should do. He then contacted the local police, who sent a selection of staff names to Scotland Yard for background checks, including that of Graham Young. The checks all came back blank, however, though by now, Hadlam was not happy to forget his gut feeling. He asked the police to double-check Graham's name, which they did, and soon discovered that he had been a patient in Broadmoor for carrying out several poisons. On the evening of the 21st of November, police officers were dispatched from Hemel Hempstead to track down Graham, and though he wasn't at home when they turned up to his rented property, they let themselves into his room. What they found inside was quite a shock. With the freedom and independence of his own room, Graham had decorated the walls full of Nazi militaria, along with sketches of skulls and crossbones and people screaming in pain, holding hair in their hands. On the shelves and windowsills, they found a sample tube containing 17.81 milligrams of thallium acetate, a sample tube with a mix of 415 milligrams of thallium and aspirin and a bottle containing 32.3 grams of antimony, 2,000 times the amount required for a fatal dose. In his jacket pocket, they found a further small vial of thallium, enough for a fatal dose. Under the bed, they found a notebook marked a student officer's casebook, which, upon opening it, was a diary written by Graham that appeared to detail his various poisonings at the optics factory. Through either laziness or a remarkable display of foresight, Graham had named his victims only by a single initial. 21st of October... I feel rather ashamed of my action in harming Jay. I think he is really a nice fellow, and the nearest to a friend that I have at Hadlands. I have faith that he will recover. 31st of October. I have administered a fatal dose of the special compound to F, and anticipate a report on his progress on Monday. 3rd of November. News from other fronts. F is now seriously ill. He is unconscious and has developed paralysis and blindness. It is likely that he will decline in the next few days. It will be a merciful release for him, as if he should survive, he would be permanently impaired. Even if the blindness is reversed, organic brain disease would render him a husk. It is better that he should die. From my point of view, his death would be a relief. It would remove one more casualty from what is rapidly becoming a crowded field of battle. Dee's loss of hair is almost total. The hospital feels it might be due to poison. I must watch the situation very carefully. If it looks like I will be detected, then I shall have to destroy myself. The events of the next few days will prove decisive. They will point either to my continuation to live or my destruction by my own hand. If I were detected, I would have to follow the maxim. Those who live by the sword, die by the sword. 17th of November The latest news from the hospital is that F is responding to treatment. He is being obstinately difficult. If he survives a third week, he will live. That could be inconvenient. I am most annoyed. He is surviving far too long for my peace of mind. F, it turned out, was Frederick Biggs, who died three days later after this entry. Detective Superintendent Harvey sat in the station reading this bizarre diary attempting to correlate names with initials, waiting for Graham to be tracked down. As it happened, 
Graham was visiting his father, and when the police knocked on the front door to inquire after his whereabouts, he gladly stepped aside to reveal Graham in the kitchen. As he was taken out to the squad car, Graham asked the arresting officer, which one are you doing me for? He was taken to Sheerness Station, where he was collected by Chief Inspector Kirkpatrick and taken back to Hemel Station. During the journey, Graham spoke openly with Kirkpatrick about the poisoning, intentionally keeping exact details vague, knowing that everything he told him would be useless as evidence. When he was asked for more details on his victims, he told the officer, The whole story is too terrible. You would be disgusted and amazed. The pair arrived back at Hemel Hempster Station at almost 7am, by which time Harvey had read the entire diary and now wanted answers from Graham on who the initials were. Graham insisted, however, that the whole thing was merely a work of fiction. He pressed the police that he had no motive and that no one even knew the names of the poisons he was supposed to have used. The next evening, however, he began to open up. He told the questioning officers of his mother's murder and boasted of how he had gotten away with the perfect crime. He told them of Sparks' poisoning directly after his release from Broadmoor and of his colleagues at Hadlands. When asked for his motive, he told them, I suppose I had ceased to see them as people, or, more correctly, a part of me had. They became guinea pigs. When they asked him if he would write and sign a written statement of guilt, he simply laughed at the officers and refused. The following day he was charged with the murder of Biggs, though in fact the police had no decisive evidence to pin him to the crime. They were working on it though, ordering both the exhumation of Robert Eggles' ashes and for both these and the internal organs of Biggs to be sent to the Metropolitan Police Forensic Science Laboratory for analysis. Ten days later, the results were returned, confirming that traces of thallium were found throughout Biggs' digestive organs, as well as in his muscle and bone matter samples. In Eggles' ashes, 9 milligrams of thallium was found to remain, leading to police charging Young with a second murder. On the 4th of December, he was further charged with GBH by the administration of poison on Diane Smart, Peter Buck, Ronald Hewitt and Trevor Sparks, and he was transferred to Brixton Prison, where he was kept in sick wing to keep him away from other prisoners due to the threat that he caused others. Here he had to sit awaiting his trial. This time, Graham Young was quite sure he would cause more of a fuss and garner far more attention than his previous trial. Following his arrest, the press were happily metering out Young's famous poisoner fantasy, calling him Dr. Death, the poison boy, and likening him to Adolf Hitler, who they called as his idol. Interviews from Chris Williams, his first victim and school friend, gave further grisly details, much of which wasn't true at all. Still, it appeased Graham, who had chosen the photograph of himself, that he wanted the papers to run with their stories. In his first trial, he had pleaded guilty, leading to the whole thing being wrapped up instantly. This time, he aimed to draw it out as long as possible. In a letter to his sister, he pressed his innocence, calling the whole thing an unfortunate episode. I do not know what you've been told of this affair, but it appears that the family have already tried and judged it. I need hardly add that this is a trifle distressing. His trial opened on the 19th of July and Graham immediately pleaded not guilty on all counts against him. Much to his satisfaction, his diary was read out in full during the morning's proceedings, which the press immediately jumped on, calling it the Diary of Death. 
For the benefit of the jury, Graham continued to insist that it was nothing more than a work of fiction that he had written based on a poisoner who had decided to murder his work colleagues. I am interested in developing my somewhat stilted style as a narrative writer, he told the courtroom. The diary had two pages torn out, and when questioned what they were, he told them that he was unhappy with his writing style, and thus had made many mistakes in earlier drafts. He said that he was a stockpiler, hoarding poisons, but not having any intent to use them, and of how his interests, which he likened to those of a collector, were being used against him by the prosecution. When asked about his conversations with police, where he had admitted guilt, he told them that he had given the police a plausible set of answers in trade for food, sleep and clothing. His demeanour in the dock was, the whole time, cool and calm, projecting an air of indifference and almost inconvenience. When the prosecution asked him why he was so calm, he responded, I do not feel particularly calm, Mr Leonard, but I am not a person who manifests a great amount of emotion. His performance, however, was fooling no one. On the 29th of July, after being excused for only one hour, the jury returned a guilty verdict on all counts, except those against Sparks and Buck, which they thought had insufficiently clear evidence. Graham Young was sentenced to life imprisonment. He was immediately transferred to Parkhurst Maximum Security Prison on the Isle of Wight. In a final act, he assured the courtroom that prison would be a much better place for him than a return to Broadmoor. Graham Young served 18 years of his life sentence before being found dead in his cell on the 1st of August 1990. His cause of death was found to be a heart attack and though he had been relatively young at the age of 42, dying two weeks before his 43rd birthday, naturally suspicions of suicide were immediately launched. However, natural causes were officially recorded, though his file does remain open. Following his second guilty verdict, the Young case prompted an inquiry into the system of care, treatments and releasing of mentally ill offenders, which saw the expansion of secure mental health hospitals throughout the country. Whilst there is nothing mysterious about the case of Graham Young, it is remarkable in Graham's cool and calculated demeanour throughout, along with the dedication to carry out poisonings from such an early age. In retrospect, it seems more remarkable that he was able to fool so many people throughout his career as a poisoner, either in their failings to link Graham to the mysterious illnesses that so many around him were suffering, or in his act to the doctors of Broadmoor, who were convinced of his immaculate recovery. In a later interview, Mr Foster, the man who had interviewed him for his job at Hadlands, remarked after the fact that The only strange thing about him was that he seemed to be content with a job that would provide little exercise for his apparent intellect. One of the only people who seemed to be able to see through Graham's outward demeanour was, ironically, Dr Fish, one of the first doctors to examine him during his first trial. From the very outset, Dr Fish insisted that Graham was dangerous and that he would be intent to returning to his poisoning behaviours as soon as he possibly could. Upon hearing about Graham's second bout of poisonings, he said simply, I am not surprised. I am no prophet, but I thought he would remain a permanent danger to the public for the remainder of his life. So that was the story of Graham Young, 
like I say, it's, a, it's one I've been sitting on for a really long time. Uh, and it's a story which I saw in a film at first, which is really worth watching. So I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute uh, after these short ad breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Havey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are the complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories, and that's dark histories all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories. Or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support, and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now. But for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon... I set my pledges as low as I can, really, with options for $1, $3, and $5 per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes, and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. 
So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30-second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So Graham Young, I first heard about it in a film called The Young Poisoner's Handbook, which is really not a very well-known film. It, it was released in 95, and it's like a British independent black comedy. And a bit like Burke and Hare, it's absolutely hilarious. I wouldn't say it's absolutely hilarious, but it's really funny, and, it, and it's a really black comedy. And it's all about the life of Graham Young. They obviously sort of shoehorn a bit of a story into his character um, to sort of give it more of a kind of characterization for a film, I guess. But otherwise, it's it's relatively sort of on point, actually, and, and accurate. And it's well worth tracking down if you can find it. It is hard to get hold of because for some reason it didn't seem to have much distribution. It, it, it had a limited run DVD release in Germany, I think. Um, and that was about it after... Basically, it went to the cinemas and then disappeared. But it is available on the internet. Um, and I say, I, I wouldn't feel too guilty about obtaining it because, I did, like I say, it's just never been distributed outside of Germany and Sweden, I think, the two places it got distribution. Anyway, it's worth a watch. You should definitely check it out if you fancy a, a black, you know, if you've got a dark sense of humour and you enjoy black comedies. It's, it's worth checking out. It's, it's, it's quite a good film. One of the more funny elements, actually, one of the books that I found, um, Criminal Poisoning Investigational Guide for Law Enforcement Toxicologists, Forensic Scientists and Attorneys, uh, is a book that I was reading through, and it had a section on Graham Young. Um, It was only a small section, it was like a paragraph. It talks about the Young Poisoner's Handbook. And and I read the quote for you because I I found it quite funny. But it says, uh, the 1995 British movie, The Young Poisoner's Handbook, as a black comedy, was based on Young's life as a poisoner. It is unlikely, however, that most homicide investigators would find the film humorous. <laughs> it's just like the stuffiest quote ever. You just say, oh, come on, mate, like, lighten up. It's a film. It's meant to be funny. Just watch it. It's, I, what I can't work out is if, it's, if, it's, if he is saying that he has no sense of humour or if other homicide investigators perhaps don't have a sense of humour. I don't know. If it, it depends on the way you read it, I suppose. But I did find that quite funny. You're unlikely to find it humorous. <laughs> Just made me laugh. Anyway, um, so on the actual case, like one of the things that I found interesting was I found in that same book, actually, the, the author addressed the idea that women are more often poisoners in history than men, which is uh, something that I always sort of, assume was probably true because you just sort of hear it, don't you? You hear that um, women were, were, you know, the majority of poisons have been women or whatever. In fact, it's not true at all. And it, it works out that um, I, I, he actually has the stats. So um, 1,026 cases that are known and documented, 45% of the poisons were male, 39% were female, and 16% were unknown. So, yeah, it's um, it turns out that that's actually a total... 
you know, myth and, and, and not true at all, which I thought was quite interesting and I, and I thought was just worth checking out as a little fact, I guess. But they, it does point out that these are of 1,026 convicted cases um, and so that there are some cases that, that maybe just, you know, what didn't go through the trial system. Uh, uh, so so the results, whilst they show convictions, they don't, maybe, you know, maybe all these, maybe the myth is true and the women that were poisoning people were just really good at it. But yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting stat anyway, and I just thought it was, um, you know, it, it it showed that perhaps those that myth isn't true, which I thought was interesting. So anyway, yeah, um, Graham Young, what an absolute psychopath. He's, I think, probably the most detached sort of psychopathic person that we've covered on on Dark Histories, as far as I can sort of tell. He just seems so cold. I mean, we've definitely covered a few psychopaths on Dark Histories, but... But Graham Young, to me, just seems so detached and so cold. And from such an early age, you know, like at nine years old, he's obsessed with Nazis wearing swastika badges and talking about wanting to become a famous poisoner, which is an interesting idea in that people are not born murderers, you know, they become murderers. Or, or you know, there's, there is, I suppose, that question, you know, you know, nature versus nurture kind of thing. Do, are people born murderers or, or is it something that they become over time? But at nine years old, you, you feel like he didn't have much time to become a murderer. I mean, I suppose he was exposing himself to materials in the books that he was reading that, that kind of stoked the interest. But at such an early age, you just wonder... I don't know, because I, I still think it's nurture rather than nature, but I, I, I found that interesting, you know, that, that at such a young age, Graham Young was so obsessed on murdering people. Sadly, I, I guess, you know, you could say sadly for him. I mean, I, I think he was a pretty nasty, brutal piece of work, to be honest, but you could say that sadly for him, he does seem to be been driven by an obsession that he couldn't control, because when he went to Broadmoor, he you know, he was poisoning people in really crass ways, sort of just dumping sugar soap into a vat of tea. When you look at his other murders, they were very calculated, metering out small dosages, you know, and correct dosages to people so that he could kind of control everything about what was going on. But in this case, he just dumped a whole vat of sugar soap into a vat of tea. You know, he became quite crass in his in his attempts to poison people, but it just goes to show that he was, I think he was really obsessed. Although you could say, how did he pack it in if he did pack it in? Because like I say, he, he wanted to get out of Broadmoor and so he quickly started behaving well then for quite a few years. So was his obsession actually driving him or was he just a nasty, nasty piece of work? I don't, I don't know. It's hard to tell, isn't it? But, you know, you can assume that his, at least an element of it was his obsession that was driving him. It's quite quite sad in a way. But like I say, I do think, Actually, I think when it comes down to it, he, he knew what he was doing and he, he I think he could have stopped if he really wanted to. I think he could have controlled himself. I think he chose not to control himself and allow himself to poison everyone that he possibly could. So, yeah, it's an interesting story with Graham Young. So, yeah, that's pretty much that episode. Um, there's not too much for me to talk about here. I mean, you've sort of just heard it all. So I'm going to leave that one there for now and let you guys get on with your day. Thanks very much for listening. If you would like to contact me, you can do so various different ways. If you go to darkhistories.com, check out the links in the show notes, you'll find all the ways in which you can contact me. If you go to say onto the website, you'll also find all the ways in which you can contact me. 
you'll also find all the ways in which you can support the show. Um, so yeah, if you would like to do that, please go ahead and do so. It's very much appreciated. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please do think about leaving a review and sharing it around with, uh, you know, on social media, friends and family, those sorts of things. Thanks very much. I will see you all next week for a live stream or two weeks for a new episode. Thanks very much for listening. Have a great couple of weeks. Stay well. Sleep tight.